Hello, this is Daniel Roebuck, and you are listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors, which is what I am. So that's why I'm happy you're listening, because we work hard. Okay, enjoy. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and today's episode of What a Character is dedicated to the legendary character actor Timothy Carey. In particular, I will be interviewing his son Romeo Carey about why Timothy Carey was the most fired actor in cinema history, why his father was a favorite actor of Stanley Kubrick, and how his father discovered legendary rock musician Frank Zappa. It's all that and more on today's episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. On this episode of What a Character, we'll be talking about a very infamous figure who has inspired the likes of actors such as Crispin Glover, Nicolas Cage, and even Seinfeld's Michael Richards. He was an actor who had the reputation of being one of the most fired actors in Hollywood due to his frightening performances and his very intense performances as well. If you're a fan of older movies, you may remember him as the doomed private Maurice Farrell in Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, or as Joe the Pimp in East of Eden. If you're a fan of cult movies, you may know him from the film The World's Greatest Sinner, which he also wrote and produced and directed. If you watched a lot of TV in the 1970s, you may know him from his guest appearances on shows like Charlie's Angels, Beretta, Columbo, Starsky and Hutch, and Super Train. Of course, I'm talking about the legendary character actor, Timothy Carey. Today on the show, my guest is a man who knew Mr. Carey very well. It is, of course, his son, Romeo Carey. Romeo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Greetings and salutation. You got a lot of courage there. But yeah, Timothy Carey. Yeah, he's he's the man you love to hate, but you left out some you left out a few uh contemporaries that are uh huge followers and attribute their their inspiration and their uh you know, their kind of following uh to my dad. Who did I leave he, out? You left out Johnny Depp. Oh, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp okay. just in, interviewed not that long for the Daily Beast, not that long ago for the Daily Beast. And he said uh, his inspirations were Marlon Brando, Timothy Carey, and Alan Garfield. Amazing. So, but I've already known, I knew that already. Um, and then there's Quentin Tarantino. You know, oh, Quentin yeah. Tarantino, you wouldn't really. Quentin needed a start. He needed to get his wheels moving. And uh, when you think about Timothy Carey and who he is, he he's part of Americana in ways that, you know, Hollywood celebrities kind of they're branded and you know who they are because they're they've been pushed by the vehicle that pushes celebrities to fame. My dad was never pushed. He was the fringe actor who was a inside outside hollywood personality and when you're in that position uh occupying two minutes in a film becomes a life or death matter 
And he right. understood that. There's no such thing as a small part. Even though he was 6'5 and 300 pounds, there was no such thing as a small part. So if you know that as an actor and you come to realize that as an actor, the kind of impression you can make in a 30-second performance can be the one thing you leave the movie with and it stays with you. Um, he, was in the, he was on the cover of the most famous uh, album cover and the most popular music of its time. He was on Sgt. Pepper's, you know, the, the, the Sgt. Pepper album. And who was chosen for the Sgt. Pepper album? Only the most famous people in the world. Right. So if you're talking about the 60s and each Beatle got to pick something like 15 of the people that are going to end up on that cover. And John Lennon picked my dad. So that's a great shot. He's in between, you know, Albert Einstein and Gandhi. But uh, so when you talk about someone who's somebody, he was, he was bigger than life. And he wasn't, he, he's remembered today, even though he never had a TV series or he was never the star of Hollywood movies. He created his own following and his own, uh, uh, he etched his own place in the Hollywood uh, Parthenon by sheer persistence. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's really a tribute to what, you know, an independent kind of all on your own, uh, what you can carve out. And it's the intestinal fortitude of someone who really understands the greatest output is to ultimately become the master of your own destiny and make your own films. And that's what really put them over the top. And, you know, you said Columbo. Columbo was something big for TV because that was the, that was the pilot series. And the pilot series, that kind of, that left a, a huge impression in the television world. And East of Eden, that movie really was all over Europe. It was, it was the most, you know, James Dean was the most popular guy on the planet. Right. He might as well have been, he might as well have been any one of the biggest celebrities that ever lived or is for his time. And so there weren't a lot of stars in that. So my, my dad became like an international figure just from that film. And his sound, his sound, it wasn't even his audio because his audio got dubbed over, but just his image and his kind of formula, his formidity kind of left a, a place in that film but that's that yeah let's start from your father's childhood but what was his upbringing like in, in brooklyn uh during the great depression wasn't he wasn't born in brooklyn he was born in somewhere upstate new york like amityville and then he he uh then he moved around you know he ended up in brooklyn that was like probably where he did his formidable years and he i still have an uncle in brooklyn Kind of in the neighborhood where they where where he grew up, but the uh, uh, he was the son of a fireman, and uh, his mother was the daughter of a banker, and the banker was was uh, his name was Rocco Agolia, and Rocco Agolia headed and founded uh, Bank of Agolia where he gave interest-free loans to Italians. And so he was, he was huge for his time. He had seven, seven sons and one daughter. The daughter was my, was my grandmother. So he grew up, you know, they grew up uh, uh, fairly upper middle class, I would say. Um, and uh, father was wealthy. I mean, grandfather was wealthy. But then they had some, they had some real uh, family dilemmas. One of the sons, the oldest son, which would be my father's, would have, would have been my oldest uncle, which I never met, um, contracted cancer. And he contracted it at Coney Island, looking uh, at his legs and arms through an x-ray machine. You put a penny in and you can like look at yourself. Right. And the x-ray was emitting so much radiation that he ended up getting cancer of the leg. 
And so that ended up costing a fortune because he went in and out of hospitals for years and ultimately died. But in the process, it like took a toll on the, on the family. And so then my, he had a sister and the sister was uh, an older sister. She died one day, just taking a, a swim in a lake. She, she contracted uh, meningitis, oh. which is like a waterborne bacteria. One of those, one of those strange kind of, uh, uh, parasitical or viral things that happen, and she right. died like in 48 hours. So he was next, and he had a younger brother, which was like eight years. He's still alive, eight years younger. Um, George Carey, George Carey would be like in his 80s now, and he um, he ended up using his dead brother's birth certificate to get into the Marines at 15, and. They ended up discovering that he was 15, and when they did, they they uh, he left, and they he ended up getting an honorable discharge. And from that, they you know you're allowed using the GI Bill to go to school. He wanted to be a singer, but they told him he was tone deaf. He said, "Why don't you try acting?" So he went to one of the finest acting schools, and um, the. Um, once he graduated, he found an agent, kind of a has-been agent, he said. But the agent at one time was Clark Gable's agent. And he said, he asked him for some advice. The guy signed him up. He says, you know, I know they're making a Western in the desert out in, I think it was Arizona, Arizona or New Mexico, maybe New Mexico. And he says, if, if you go out there, I, I'm sure they'll give you a part you know, background and extra. I mean, that's my advice to you. So my dad hitchhiked from Brooklyn to New Mexico. And while he's out in the middle of the desert, he said he was, he was dying. He just never, a guy from Brooklyn didn't have a clue what it was like to be out in the middle of nowhere. And he said, he was just dying of thirst. He started seeing mirages and things. And he said, he said he saw, an Indian in the distance across the street and he waved at him and he did the, like he was thirsty because he figured this Indian's not going to be speaking English. Um, and he said the Indian called him over and he followed him down this hill, the side of the road. He said he pushed over this rock, this rock that was blocking an underground stream. And he said there was just all this water just flowing. And uh, I just, I was just drinking, just drinking and drinking. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And he says, when I turned around, the Indian was gone. I said, back on the road. And when he got there, sure enough, he finds the set and he finds the production company going on. And um, they offer him a, you know, a background part. His first job was playing a dead person in a river with some arrows in his back. And uh, that first night when he, when he worked, he ran into Clark Abel. So he's on the set and he told him, Hey, me and you have the same agent. And they just quick meeting and Clark Abel sent him over, sent over an invitation for dinner. It was only a, it was a private little invitation, him and lady Asher, which was Clark Gable's wife and a small party. But, but uh, as he, he goes to the party, he eats and then they start really asking questions. And they said, so what, what role are you playing? And he says, no, I'm an extra. And he says, man, if you could have seen Clark Gable's face, you just couldn't believe he just whined and dined an extra. He thought, <laughs> I, he thought I was like, I had to be one of the main actors. But that's how, that's how much of an impression he had even before he was an actor that he just knew he was somebody. Kind of lucky, though. I mean, you're a total nobody. And the first thing you do when you get to Hollywood is, you know, get an extra in a big movie and get invited to a, a party by Clark Gable. Well, it's kind of like, Half of life, but well, no, it's, it's more than half of, of anything you ever get out of life is because you're not going to see it any other way. Right. And so if, if, you've already, if you already see that that's the reality that's going to take place and you know you just have to do the things to, to get there, and that might be drilling a hole under something, might be going around it on top of it, whatever that is, but nothing's going to stop you from getting what you know is yours. And so the only other person who's going to take it away is somebody who's going to do a better job than you in, 
in getting it. And so if you approach things with that attitude, which he did, it was pretty impossible because that was his. You're going to have to take it away from him. Even if it was a part that the director didn't even know that was going to go to him, he wanted that part. He'd, he'd find a way to get the part. That was, that, that was pretty common. And lots of times, interesting, he would go through that. And for him, once he got the part and he got the director completely sold on him playing that part, mm-hmm. to him, that was like he played the part already. It was just as good as if he were in it, even if he didn't end up being in it. Right. Pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Now, why did Billy Wilder fire uh, your dad off the set of Ace in the Hole? Oh, let's see. Well, first, um, Billy Wilder. Yeah, that was another. That was another thing because when he got, he ended up getting fired from that that Clark Gable film. He said because he couldn't hold still in the water. He kept moving. So he left that and they said, Hey, we got to fire you. Here's a couple of vouchers. And they paid him for a couple of days. And they said, if you hike over this other state, they're shooting a, a Western over there. Uh, it was with uh, Errol Flynn. And um, <laughs> so he was off to that one. He went to that one and that one, um, I think, yeah, that's the one uh, where he he got the part. They, they showed up and they said, yeah, we could use you as an extra. And then when the day came, he was supposed to go work. They said, no, no, you, we, uh, we, uh, we can't use you. And he says, no. He says, I, I was here. The casting director said that I, I'm in it. And he says, no, sorry. We're, we have every, everybody for the background today. So... <laughs> So they're supposed to, he's supposed to go home, but where's home? He'll, he's, he's got going anywhere. He's got to go work. So he started knocking on the director's door. And who was the director? Is Billy Wilder. And he said he's knocking and knocking and knocking. He just wouldn't stop knocking. And he, finally someone opened the door and it was Billy Wilder. And he, had, he said he had all these pieces of tissue paper all over his face because he had cut himself shaving. <laughs> he probably cut himself because... <laughs> Someone's knocking on his door and he's trying to speed up. And he said, uh, he said, if you knock on my door again, I'm going to let you have it. Imagine Billy Wilder's like five feet tall. He had to look straight up to tell that to my dad. (laughs) Just imagine what kind of person Billy Wilder was, right? Right. Um, So now my dad was pissed. So he goes back to the guy who said, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have a job here. And now he's pissed because he got him in trouble with the director. And uh, the guy says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, we have a, somebody, somebody just turned up sick. You got We need you. So he, he was working, he's working the film with Billy Wilder. But Billy Wilder would get angry at, I don't really know the reason why he got angry at him, but I'm sure it was, my dad had this thing where he would do it once your way and then he would do it his way. He wouldn't just give the director what he wanted. He would do what he thought he wanted. And then the director can go decide at the, in the end what to do with it. And that would always piss the director off because he kind of never did the same thing twice. And it's mostly because he was kind of following the director and then he'd be following what he wanted to do. He always thought, look, and it, it makes a lot of sense. If you get hired as as a commodity, could be a comedian, could be whatever whatever that is that they're hiring, any role, any you know, they know what you do, you got the part. Um, so now you hired that commodity. That commodity is going to do what he does, right? And right. the direct the director only has so much control. It's like a it's like a coach only has so much control of his soccer team, his football team. The team's going to do what it does, right? You only have so much influence. How much influence can you have? Some directors want complete influence. They want all motivation to be a direct result from what the director gave you and nothing else. It's just they don't want you deviating into something that they don't understand. But to my dad, that was, that was uh, shortchanging his own uh, opportunity. And he'd much rather get fired than um, shortchange what he thought was the performance that he wanted to give. So it was always, it was when you get fired, 
<laughs> once you understand the truth behind it, and if you could watch a camera from the side of everything Timothy Carey ever did, and you saw what he got fired for, <laughs> you would come to the conclusion that you've got somebody who's frightened by the situation, so he's just going to kill it. But if, if he had a little bit more understanding, he had a little bit more creative um, open-mindedness, he would see it as an opportunity and he would take advantage of it. But there's so much psychology, there's so many personalities and you're dealing with big actors and everybody's got to kind of play this role, even the, even the directors. So you run into a director uh, who you know really feels like I can I can get rid of this guy? I already got his performance, a small part. We could work around it, and so they usually wouldn't get fired. He'd never get fired until they got what they wanted out of him. But there's always this, you keep him around for a couple of days because there's extra stuff, and you never know at the end of the day if you still need him. So you don't want to fire somebody if you could help it. But people got pleasure out of firing my dad. It's just kind of fun to say I fired Timothy Carey. <laughs> Your dad was very good friends with James Dean. Uh, what was it about uh, your father that, that James Dean liked so much? Uh, I don't know if they were, I don't know if they were great friends. They hung out together. They drove together. My dad said he was a maniac in a car. My dad said they did hang out during the shoot. They were friends on, on the, on the, the shoot of, uh, of um, East of Eden. They hung out together. Why? I mean, they had scenes together, so they were they were there weren't a lot of people on that set. But uh, he said one time he ran into him in Hollywood, hadn't seen him in a long time, and he went up to him and said hi to him. And Dean wasn't the same person; he was just the indifferent. He was like like uh, celebrity had gotten to him. Some he said he just something came over him. He's just not no no more connection it was a disconnect and the only thing my dad could say was you know maybe it was just celebrity got to him hard to know because you know james dean is a, a complex person himself right now um despite your dad's reputation of being fired by directors uh stanley kubrick um hired him a few times you know for uh paths of glory for the killing and, and so forth uh, what, what was about uh, your father that 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 Stanley Kubrick uh, liked so much? Well, because now you're dealing with aside from his talents as an actor, of course. Well, they're both from New York. They they both came out of the same the same region of the world, the same towns. They had they had that in common. They were about the same age um, when my father was cast in the killing first, that was really Stanley Kubrick's first big, uh, you know, big foray into commercial filmmaking up until that time he hadn't done anything of note. And so this was the first time he's working with professional actors. And, and I interviewed not long ago, James, uh, uh, James B. Harris, James B. Harris. Thank you. Yeah. James B. Harris. It's just it great to talk to him. Guy's like 90 years old, but completely lucid, remembers everything like it was yesterday. Oh, and no. he said, he said, uh, they were doing a documentary on Kubrick and on uh, on Harris himself, but was, the, the whole thing's really centered, centered around his, his relationship with Kubrick and the films that they made. And uh, he said, after we cast your dad, we just couldn't stop talking about him. It was like, we couldn't wait to like put him in the next film. This is all our jokes and everything was just all centered around your dad. And he said, so of course, when we got the job in, uh, you know, in Germany to shoot uh, Paths of Glory, it was like first guy we're going to hire. And then we said, let's have him come over with us. So we like, it won't be boring for the first couple months. And um, he goes and, they cast a bunch of people. They cast, uh, uh, who was it? It was another guy he had worked with um, in it. The guy who gets knocked out. What's his name? Joseph Turkel. Joseph Turkel is one of, he, he was in The Shining, the bartender in The Shining. He had a lot, right. of, a lot of interesting parts, but he had worked with him in The Boy and the Pirate. He had done a bunch of films with him before they worked in this. And on the way over on the plane, uh, Turkel asked my dad, he says, hey, in this film, 
don't upstage me. Just give me, don't, we got scenes together. Could you not, let's take over the whole scene. Could you like help me out with that? And my dad says, you do what you do. I do what I do. That's, that's, the, that's the way it works. And um, uh, I asked, I got to ask him about that. But uh, so Jane, back to James Harris, James Harris said, so we're there for about a month. Everything's going great. We got all our locations. We're getting all our cast and our, all our extras. They needed like hundreds of extras. It was a big deal just to production wise to pull it all together for guys that were fairly new at it. But uh, he said, dad comes to me and says, ah, I want to go home. He goes, what do you mean you want to go home? He says, you're here for at least three months. It's only been a month and we're going to, we haven't even started shooting yet. And he said, well, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And he goes, what do you think it was going to be? And he goes, well, it's just no fun. And he goes, well, what did you expect? You're, I mean, he says, well, I wanted to go out at night and like have fun. He says, but there's no, none of my people are here. And he goes, who are your people? And he said, blacks. <laughs> what? <laughs> was, what? And he's, he goes, yeah, I thought they were like military. I thought there'd be a, if you hang out with it, we could have some fun. And he's like, no. And he says, I just couldn't believe it. That's what your dad said. And he says, no, you're just, you do that when you get back to LA. It's not, you're not going to find that here. There's no blacks in Germany. So I just thought that was insane because when he first came here, he was living in, um, in a black neighborhood it was Watts. It was mostly, mostly black. There was a famous guy. I forgot his name in Italian who built the Watts tower, which is a big landmark built it all out of glass bottles, still standing. And, um, uh, yeah, so I, I knew, and he knew everybody, he knew fats Domino. He knew chubby checkers. He knew everybody who was somebody. Those were all his, all his friends. And, uh, there was a story once from, uh, the, cameraman from uh the world's greatest sinner uh dennis steckler dennis ray steckler and dennis ray steckler became a kind of a, a director himself and he edited a lot of movies he produced a lot of movies and a real b movie kind of guy but of his own sort but he got started uh on the world's greatest sinner that was his first break and he said your dad would invite me out and he'd take me to these black places, places that I would never, I would never go. And he says, man, I was like, he goes, he goes, now when you're with me, you don't worry about it. And he said, he said, uh, as these clubs and it was like, we go to the clubs and sure enough, everybody knew your dad. And they were like, he says, when you're with me, you're, you're going to be perfectly fine. And he says, was like, we go to this rib place and they would, they wouldn't even charge him. They even, I, I couldn't give him any money. It was just, if your dad was in the place, they were just like so happy he was there. And he said, so he was right. I've never had so much fun. He says, but it was because, you know, you, I, I wouldn't even have thought of going into a place like that from where he was from. The guy was, you know, mm. yeah. But so, yeah, this is kind of interesting. But uh, the thing about Kubrick and what, what resonated with Kubrick was he was of a higher order of kind of, uh, he knew who he was. And he knew um, he knew artistic uh, freedom, and he knew commodities. He knew that if he hired an actor, and if an actor was of the sort that wanted to add to the palette, why not? He has nothing to lose because Kubrick doesn't mind taking you know a hundred takes of something. And right. what's he looking for? He's looking for variations, so he has something to choose in the end. And he knew he knew full well that I can't be as good as two artists, right? Why right. would I cut? Why would I cut off an artist's contribution who's willing to contribute and add something that I don't even see to a scene? Why would I? Why would I abort that? And you abort it because because frightened directors, frightened actors, people who want to get you fired are all operating on fear. And fear is irrational. And so when you got someone who knows themselves, they know their abilities. And more than that, they're open to expanding kind of the output, the creative output. I mean, anybody can add something amazing to a movie. It could be an extra. It could be, you know, it could be the sound guy or the camera guy sees something 
And if you're open to it and you're willing to like, listen to it, um, you might find, uh, you know, an amazing moment that you would have never arrived into. So they had that. And so when, whenever Kubrick hired my dad, he knew, he knew that he had that advantage. And so my, my dad was hired, would have been hired four times by Kubrick because he was cast in the only movie Brando ever directed, One-Eyed Jacks, but he was cast by Kubrick because Kubrick was, uh, was to direct that, but he had a falling out with Brando. And in fact, had a falling out so much so that Brando would bring my dad to meetings because Brando was so uh, just so can he, so physical and, and becoming such a threat. So right. to protect protect them, his muscle was my dad. He knew Brando wasn't going to mess with Timothy Carey. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then he was cast, and then and then there was another incident where my uncle tells the story where my dad was working on the world's greatest sinner. And my uncle, in fact, has a master's degree from NYU in film. So he's a, he's, he, uh, and, and my father, by contrast, never graduated the, uh, the 10th grade. Who's making the films? My dad's the filmmaker, right? right? And so he came out to work on my dad's film under my dad. Right. And he said, you know, he's making phone calls all day because they built a studio and he's working in the studio. He invited one of his friends to come out with him from New York too. So it was him and his buddy. They said it was the most amazing experience they ever had. He's, and we got a call one day um, from the set of Spartacus. And who is it? It's, it's Stanley Kubrick. And he said, I'm talking to Stanley Kubrick. And he says, he says, I want to talk to Timothy Carey. Can you get him? And he goes, sure, right away. And so he says he goes outside. And if you ever saw The World's Greatest Sinner, there's a horse in it. And that horse, the name of the horse is Agolia. And uh, my dad was combing the horse because we had a stable on the property. And uh, he went out and told him, he says, hey, uh, Stanley Kubrick's calling from the set of Spartacus. And he says, okay. And he says, uh, all right. And so he went back and made small talk with Kubrick to keep him busy for a while. And my dad never showed up. Hmm. So my dad must've been angry at him still over something, whatever that was, something happened. So his way of saying, I'm not going to work in Spartacus was just don't go to the phone. What role was he supposed to play in Spartacus? That I don't know. We never got that far. Wouldn't it be fun to know? Yeah, yeah. I'll have to watch Spartacus again and try to sort of figure that out. See where he would have been. But yeah, so that would have been, I mean, there was a time where two films in a row, and when he got cast in uh, One-Eyed Jacks, there's an article that talked about Stanley Kubrick's lucky charm as Timothy Carey. You can wow. imagine that. If you can yeah. imagine Timothy Carey in all the Spartacus, I mean, all the Stanley Kubrick films, it's, it's uh, I, I shudder to think about it. It's, yeah. it's, it's an amazing idea. <laughs> yeah. So uh, your your father got to work twice with Debbie Reynolds. And uh, a lot of actresses in Hollywood, from what I understand, didn't like working with your father. But but Debbie really liked working with your father. Can, can you tell us why that was? Um, they worked in a movie called Second Time Around. I think there was a lot of downtime. And... I think it was two films my father worked with him, but I know definitely second time around. I think that was what it was called. And um, they hit it off. They were like, they were, they were, they had a connection that was kind of uncommon. And um, uh, Debbie even made this custom award that she, she fashioned. It was all, uh, it, was, it was, it was nailed to a placard and it was, it was out of uh you know, like uh, not bronze. Yeah, I guess it was bronze. And she had formed the whole trophy and she called it the best smelling man award. Something like that. And there's a whole note. And it was like, it was, it was like a big, it was like a little big thing to her that she made this presentation to him. But um, 
I know they were good, really good friends because she had a she had a like the Debbie Reynolds show. It was a TV series that she started, right. and my dad wanted me to play um, her son, and so wow. I got I got to meet her and I got to but I I got cold feet. I chickened out. I just wasn't I wasn't ready for all that Hollywood stuff at like six. It was a little it was a little too overwhelming for me. So my dad said, "All right." Wow. Yeah. So I like, I, I could have, I could have and should have, I would have. So I saw them both as buddies. There were, there's no doubt it would have worked out if I was able to pull it off. But I was like, I chickened out. I was like, it was too much. Oh man. I was like, it was like, I had, I'd done some acting, but it was like, this was too much. It was like, there was, there's too much writing on it. You could tell there's this, you know, it was a network thing and it was like too many hands in it. For me, at that age, I just wasn't chickened out. And those long hours probably were. Uh... I never got. I never even got that far. It was just the auditioning part. I was in the auditioning mm-hmm. part, but it's one I didn't realize. Like, holy shit! Later, you know, way later, that was my part. All I had to do was like own it. It was. It was it, the chances of actually being that person was like mine to take but I, I chickened out. Now, moving on to world's greatest sinner, where, where did your father get the idea uh, for the concept of the film? What inspired him to create that film? Well, I th- his, it was, his motivation was, uh, was he, he was tired of Hollywood touting movies as controversial. So he just went into his own life experience and kind of, you know, there's like, post world war ii was he had a religious you know catholic upbringing mm-hmm. got a irish mother irish father ca- uh, italian mother you know they're all catholics and so the idea of religion and then he he wanted to be a singer you know he wanted to be a singer he couldn't be a singer so he turned himself into a singer in a movie he's just like throwing you know that and politics it was like a it was a mix of he never mixed more than two of those in one movie. He mixed, he mixed like a whole sexual kind of side to it, like a David Koresh, a Jim Jones kind of uh, uh, aspect, where you know a guy turns into like a, you know, uh, almost like a uh, Manson type. It's got all these women, and and then the whole cult element in terms of actually operating a cult, and then turning yourself into a god and uh challenging god and then you know the devil comes into the picture and you're it's a showdown with it's a showdown with god at, at the end of it but it's 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 just way too much for i think anybody to take on as a as a as your first movie it's just right but, but it did, why why did he make it i guess cuz he couldn't make anything else at the time, right. that's what he thought he needed to make. And so, you know, the greatest struggle for anybody in life is to first discover who you are, find out who that person is, and then recognize that for the rest of your life, everybody, even up until the point where you discover it, the whole mission for everybody is to, to break you down and to take that away and to get you to conform to what they want you to be. And he didn't have that in him. He was 100% uh, knew who he was and wasn't going to allow anybody to steer him in another direction because there's nothing, nothing greater in life than to maintain who you are and what you think you are and then to live in that mode despite all the slings and arrows that you're going to take for it and, you know, let fortune do her worst, whatever you might lose, as long as you don't lose your independence and your honesty, honesty is just to yourself. And the worst thing in life is to be a sellout to yourself and actually think that's okay. Because it's completely dishonest to yourself. And that's, that's a rare commodity Right. And in that in that rare commodity, you find gems like the world's greatest sinner. 
And, you know, that movie, like a lot of movies, is notable for just not, you know, thinking about what people want. It's just its own thing. I mean, that's why, you know, so many classic films are classic. It's because they, you know, are, you know, separated from the norm. Well, you know who made it. It's got their fingerprints all over it. That's the the greatest travesty in the arts is when a film is made that you can't decipher whose fingerprint it is because it's got everybody's fingerprint except your own. Right. But it's a celebration when you know, in fact, that this movie and movies that have that have the originator's fingerprints all over it. You can't deny it. It's just 100 percent. You know, those movies you can't forget because they excite the chemicals in the brain to such a fever pitch that when you see scenes performed in that in that kind of uh, originality, they sear you for life. Right. I know what and you mean. So, yeah. And so that that's what controversy was, really. And so that my dad, in his mind, this I'm going to make a controversial film. This is as far as I can go with what I think is controversial and, and get away with it. But, you know, the truth was back then, that movie, people couldn't sleep at night. The people that came and saw it, people walked out. It was just too horrific. It was just too you got to just imagine what things were like during that time and what kind right. of what was on the screen and what people were used to and how far out in left field this really was. So, Given you know, the, the movie's controversial nature, did he ever try releasing it in grindhouse theaters and like in the late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, he did. He, he, he would four wall his own. Um, he would four wall his own, uh, you know, he he sell ticket. He was doing everything, but it was like it was, nobody really wanted it. The houses that you wanted to get it into, the Lowe's and the the whatever the whatever the chains were, but they wouldn't let it in. They're like, nope, not gonna let it into our chain. Not gonna let it into even the art house version of our chain. So he was relegated to finding like pussycat theaters because you know, right. houses that were showing like you know porn and stuff like deep throat movies like that yeah yeah so he couldn't even they he it's just it's part of what i mean you right. it was too it was nobody wanted no one wanted to cater to it because they didn't want to be seen with it it's like i can't put that in my theater so because of that it was basically banned it was it was it was a band a band film from mainstream and so People like John Cassavetes would, you know, he'd come, he'd come in and try to distribute it for him and put it through the channels where he had success in Europe. Wow. And so he'd send it to Europe and they're like, what is this? <laughs> they had absolutely no clue what it was. It's like, because Europe could understand and appreciate love stories because yeah, it just put some subtitles. Everybody knows what's going on. It's like, it's easy to decipher and translate. The world's greatest sinner is like all Americana, and it's the it's it's a it's a journey in in, in uh, through the mind of Timothy Carey, and you can't even understand it if you're literate from this country, right? right? So, so he couldn't find anybody in Europe at that time that that would distribute it either. It just didn't make any sense to them. Now, the film is notable for featuring a, a score composed by a very young Frank Zappa. How did your father discover uh, Frank Zappa and what inspired him to hire Frank? Uh, my dad was working in a movie. I forgot what movie it was, but it was, they, were shooting, they were shooting at one of the sets. And uh, one of the, like the electrician brought in his neighbor and his neighbor was Frank Zappa. And Zappa goes straight up to my dad and says, hey, um, introduces himself. And, he, and uh, they start talking and, and he said, well, my dad said, I'm working on a movie. If you, uh, if you can get the orchestra for the movies, I want it to be an orchestral. I'll give you the job. And so they stayed in contact. And, and when it came time, that was after brought his guitar to the set that day too. And he was playing, showing him how good he was. Wow. And uh, so my dad was impressed with it. And so, he came and did the did the score. It was a fifty five piece orchestra, and they scored the thing for to the movie to the print. Um, I think it took all day. They did it at Chaffee 
community college somewhere in Alta Loma, California, out in the boonies. And uh, there he is. I have all the original recordings. So it was, it was a opportunity. That, that was his first really big break to work in film and to, and to be uh, exposed to the whole makings of film because Zappa would show up. He would show up during production. He was like through the whole thing. So I have all these photos of him hanging out and he's like, in most instances, he's all clean cut in a suit. Uh, and my dad's like got this wild hair and a beard. And like, which one, which one's Frank Zappa? And right. then uh, there was someone who wrote a book like 20 years ago. And he says, man, but wanting to see the world's greatest center, but I'm in Canada and it's like, couldn't get my hands on a bootleg or anything. Right. Uh, can I see it? And I showed it to him. I showed it to him in the studio where it was made. And uh, he says, holy shit, I finished the book, but I left out the best chapter. He says, now I know where Zappa was, where, where he got its inspiration. Now I know what created Frank Zappa. Because if, if this guy hung around your dad for as many months as he did in a year, two years, it took a long time. He says, he like ripped them off. He ripped everything off, <laughs> everything. And why not? I mean, my dad was his mentor. And at the end, when he, when he ended up, he got on the Steve Allen show, Zappa did, right. saying that he could Playing play the bicycle. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it was to promote, promote his, his music, which is what is, you know, that was the, the main reason. And, he, and, you know, he spoke about the world's greatest sinner and how, how it's the world's worst film with the world's greatest score and uh and all the actors are from skid row and that's like that's like the ultimate um way of kind of chopping down your mentor you know to up them and then to take off it's like you have to destroy uh the thing that made you and that was his that was his departure from my dad and so my dad said hey you you got to apologize. That wasn't a nice thing to say, you know, get on, you get on a national TV show and then, then, uh, and then pan a film that you did the soundtrack for. It's just not, didn't say anything positive about it except about yourself. So he wanted to distance himself from him. It was a, it was a moment of, you know, who knows you, you know, you'd have to ask, ask Frank Zappa, but, uh, my my mother used to do a lot of poetry and a lot of the poetry Zappa would take when, you know, he still had, when he was in mothers of invention and stuff. So I think a lot of my mom's poetry ended up in his music. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I had no idea. It's all off the, go through all his music and try to find some similarities. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It's just something my, my mom said, but um, yeah. And my mom, my mom and dad were friends with his parents. They used to come over and it was, it was more than just Frank Zappa doing, doing a score. There was, there was a little more to it. I met, um, I met, uh, not Dweezil, but I met, uh, Is it Ahmet? Ahmet. Yeah. I met Ahmet. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He wanted to get together and say, Hey, my dad's got a lot of music. You got a lot of film. Maybe we can like marry it together and like put it out just as a, a marriage. So, okay, well, look into it. I never, I never really followed up with it, but I'll probably get together with them to release the original soundtrack. It's pretty amazing because you hear all the original recordings and you hear uh, Frank calling each one of the the cues. You know, it's, it count it down. And he'd like redo it. Hmm. it. It was really, really pretty. It's an amazing documentary of the whole. Um, I think it was like 12 hour recording. Wow. Are we ever going to see like a 4k remastered Blu-ray of the world's greatest center? Is that in the works? Uh, well, in fact, they're doing a, a restoration at the uh, motion picture arts and science. They, uh, they do restorations of, you know, a lot of amazing films, classics, and they're chosen by, uh, these uh arc these uh donors one is uh martin scorsese and then there's uh uh what's the other one george Steven lucas. spielberg george, george lucas spielberg's part of it and 
they've been trying to get a hold of the world's greatest center for years. And I finally, I finally worked out a deal where I brought the whole library and now it's in, it's uh, they've, they've created a, you know, an archive just under Timothy Carey, Romeo Carey, a collection, and they're taking the best prints and they're going to turn it into the, you know, the greatest uh, reconstructed, uh, resurrected version. So it's, it's underway right now. So yeah, there's going to, there's going to be no doubt probably an 8k version. Very cool. Yeah. If you can imagine that. So I guess like Arrow or Criterion is going to put out like a Timothy Carey box uh, with all of his you know film projects and everything. Yeah, it might be them. We'll see. We'll see who. We'll see who that is. It might end up being me. Very cool. Now Elvis Presley was a fan of the world's greatest sinner. What did he like about that movie? Uh, my dad worked in the last Elvis film. Uh, it was called Change a Habit with Mary Tyler Moore, and. On the set, uh, my dad gets a tap on his shoulder, and it's he turns around and it's and it's Elvis Presley, wow. and Elvis Presley says, "Man, you're Timothy Carey. You did the world's greatest sinner." <laughs> he says, he's, "Yeah." And he says, "I want to see that film. I want to see that film. Do you have it in? Uh, do you have it in sixteen millimeter? Because he had his own he had his own theater, but it was all sixteen millimeter prints." My dad said, "No, I have it in 35." He said, "But I could show it to you." They never, they never got together. They got his phone number. They, they exchanged phone numbers and stuff. Um, his front man, I forgot his, his the guy who went everywhere with him. But yeah, they were. He was hot uh, in pursuit of the world's greatest sinner. But my dad never got to, never got to show it to him. But Elvis knew it just through the grapevine. Like a lot of people, he heard about it. You know, right. And, and back then it was one of those things that was so shocking that you couldn't actually see it or touch it, but you, it was like folklore. It exists like a, like a Bigfoot, like Yeti. Now your, your father got to work with Clint Eastwood in two episodes of Rawhide. Uh, did your dad ever tell you any stories about what it was like working with Clint? No, he never told me any stories. I mean, I like that. I like watching it. I like watch. I like watch, in one of the episodes there was a there was a fight scene, and the and the cool thing was the uh, one of the directors of one of those episodes uh, was his name. He had a cool name, Sutton Rowley. Sutton Rowley. Sutton Rowley ended up playing the judge in The Insect Trainer. That was a play. One of my dad's. <laughs> What one of my dad's last kind of uh, his last kind of major projects, and I mean, I never really made the connection. But then later, I go, "Holy shit, that was Sutton Rowley. That guy was directing that scene where they're fighting. You know, there's a whole fight scene. And what's amazing is when you got a big star, the big star gets the major close-up because he's the star. He gets like all that." And everybody else is like medium shots. You might get a slip in a little tight shot, but for, for this scene, man, it's like matched. And my dad was getting everything because at that time, my dad was a bigger name than, than, um, than Clint Eastwood at the time. Now tell us about tweets, ladies of Pasadena. How did your father attempt to sell that pilot to the networks? Mm. Well, he knew someone at the network. He knew somebody at NBC who was a programmer. And he said, we definitely, just like Benny Hill, because Benny Hill was big on one of the other networks, that we can we can absolutely guarantee it'll be after hours. It won't be during prime time, but we have a slot for that. And I already know I can convince the networks that this is something that we can play and it's worth our while. He says, just start churning out, try to get, try to get like, you know, six or 12 episodes, get them already done half hour shows and um, uh, show up with at least six of them and we'll, I'll push it and, and it'll become a reality. And so my dad embarked on putting together six of the episodes and just about the time when he, when he 
packaged six episodes, his buddy got sacked. So now he didn't. And so he still say, look, here's all our correspondence. Cause actually it was all in writing. They were talking about it and that I went ahead and did it. And they like, yeah, it was, it was already green. It was already green lit for anything after 10 that you had a slot for it. And uh, I said, well, put together a feature version of it. And that feature version, we'll have a screening with all of the execs and we'll determine it because he's gone. And so that's what he did. He ended up putting together like a 70 minute feature version of the film. And uh, because they thought, well, maybe we'll test run it in theaters and see how well it does. And so all he put together was the, a work print. A work print is like, it's kind of like nobody should see a work print because the work mm. print, especially a 16 millimeter shot in 16, mm. right. is just very rough. If you have, if most people are out of touch with what film is all about, but 16 is very unforgiving when it comes to like just splices and the, the fragility of the element. So it like tears up and it's like doing it on a moviola and upright. It's really rough. Right. But anyway, as a consequence, um, we show them this work print and they were like, what the, they were like, yes, in the work print, the other, the other downside to a work print is there's not a, it's a single audio track. So it hadn't even been scored. It hadn't been, it's just like completely mono rough. It's the first draft of something you're going to make. And, but you completely see what it is. If you, if you see it, then like you throw the money at it because there it all is. It just, they didn't know what to do with it. It just frightened them. Even though I was sitting at the screening and there were people like falling out of the aisles laughing. It was absolutely unhinged, but I think they just didn't want to deal with my dad. They just didn't want. And then it was kind of at that time, it was really tough to get into, into, you know, into the studio system. It was very, very, uh, very difficult. You had to have something that they wanted that was completely in tune with a, a commercial uh, cookie cutter version of something that was successful. And this was like, this was a fun, happy version of the world's greatest sinners, like Satan meets Santa Claus. But it was, it was, it just didn't resonate with them. So because the concept was just so unusual, they just didn't know how to market it to the masses. Was that the, the big yeah, problem? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they, I, they probably couldn't get advertisers. They probably thought, "How are we going to sell this? How are we going to?" But the truth is, they could have done a Benny Hill thing. You know, Benny right. Hill's just funny, and it's just a, this ongoing. And it, this had this had an amazing simple story it was just it was it all centered around tweet twig tweet twigs like a born loser and uh he was in the military where, where he was a chef and he, he worked in the kitchen and and he he's at a he's at a wrestling match in in london and this 350 pound wrestler called terrible tess falls out of the ring and right into his arms and it's love at first sight and they relocate to Pasadena, California, where he can't find a job. He's just notoriously getting sacked from every job he ever gets hired, kind of like his real life. Right. And, and he's befriended by this little old lady knitting society. And they want to induct him as the only male member of the Don't Drop a Stitch Knitting Club. And then they pass him off with their Chamber of Commerce Connections to all these fast food places and mechanics. And he gives away hamburgers at, you know, the, the hamburger joint, he gets stuck in a, in a, you know, in a truck that's on a lift. He just can't, he can't really do anything. So he's always getting fired, but uh, his, his, his soft spot is he takes, he takes animals that the neighborhood don't, they don't want, they want discarded animals. So his whole house fills up with animals and the, and the landlord is like beside himself because he just sees a line of people that know that this is like the humane society and that all the animals end up at this guy's rented house and the landlord lives next door and has to, has to watch it. And so he's always, he's always beside himself. And so the whole series was all about a guy getting sacked every week. And, <laughs> and, then, and, 
and him rolling around, you know, uh, Pasadena with, with, you know, 20 little old ladies on roller skates. It's just, it was, it's absolutely, it's someone, someone said is like, uh, John Waters on acid. <laughs> Imagine selling that to the networks. Yeah. Now, I find it amazing that despite the fact that your your dad's projects kept being rejected, he just never gave up. You know, what, what gave him the confidence to just keep going? Good question, Colin. So if if you're a true artist, a true artist is is uh, is clear on one thing. And that's nothing means anything unless you completed it. Nothing means it doesn't mean anything. How could it? It would right. be like, it would be like me taking a breath, but not exhaling. It doesn't go together. Right. Right. It's it's. And so things that one completes, things that one completes is, is, is true success you know you can't you can't i mean if you're a real artist you can't live with yourself unless you complete it it doesn't matter what what anything it is it doesn't matter where it goes or where it what what's the what's the outcome what matters is that i have a vision and i i have to bring it home i have to i have to complete the mission and if you don't complete the mission then you failed you could have learned a lot of things. You can call it a success because there's lots of things you picked up and, you know, maybe you learned that you're a failure, that you can't complete things. You're not a closer. And so success is measured by the things one completes. And that's, that could be fatherhood, right? Mm-hmm. If you weren't around and you didn't, you didn't, you didn't do the things to be a father, then you were unsuccessful. You didn't complete the mission. Right. And so right. an artist, an artist, it's about completion. Cause now, you gave birth to your vision and that vision, if it is what you intended it to be, the energy that's stored in it is no different than Michelangelo's statue of David. Once the energy is compressed into that little box, into that rock, into that whatever energy that you toiled to put your fingerprint on, that never leaves. It's there forever. Well, that about wraps it up for part one of my interview with Mr. Romeo Carey. In part two of our interview, he will tell us what it was like having Timothy Carey as a father, his father's hobby of training attack dogs, and how his father almost got cast in a Quentin Tarantino film. It's all that and more on next week's What a Character. Now, for those of you who are fascinated with pop culture, you might want to check out Romeo Carey's hit podcast called The Romeo Carey Podcast. It is available for download on platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Audible. Now, he hasn't done any new episodes lately, but he has done plenty of episodes where he has interviewed people such as Penny Marshall, Joe Montagna, Dick Gregory, and Netflix CEO Ted Sarandos. And if you are a fan of Timothy Carey, you will definitely want to check out the episode where you'll get to hear footage of Timothy's audition for the role of Don Altabello for The Godfather Part 3. So please give that a listen. You will definitely get a kick out of it. Trust me. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. 
And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. Thank you.